Are you tired of the cost and pressure to work harder, faster and longer hours? Have you ever felt guilty for taking a break or slowing down your work? Do you believe that success only comes from grinding it out and hustling non-stop? Have you ever wondered if there was a better way to achieve your goals without sacrificing your health, personal life and happiness? Join me after the intro for a conversation with a very special friend with whom we will answer this and many more questions. Stay tuned. Do you feel stuck in your life? Do you feel unhappy but not completely sure what that is? Do you hold a grudge towards someone for something they did which affects you and the way you live your life? Have you ever told someone I forgive you, but in reality you were not completely over what happened. Why is it so difficult to truly forgive? How do we forgive? And can anything and anyone be forgiven? Hi, my name is Rosanna D and I'm the host of the Forgiven Tribe Show. This is a safe and not judgmental place for sharing opinions and challenging experiences where the practice of forgiveness helped individuals to get unstuck and create a much more fulfilling life than they had before. Join me in this exciting journey to unveil how you too can have the life you deserve. Simply click the subscribe button below to receive notification about future episodes. Welcome to the Forgiven Try Show. For many of us, the idea of hustling has become synonymous of working harder, faster, and longer hours in pursuit of success. But at what cost? Is this traditional notion of hustle sustainable or even desirable? Burnout, stress, anxiety are becoming increasingly common. Having burnout only a few years ago and still on my healing journey, I know for a fact that this leads to immense losses for the individual, their family and friends, the business or organization they work for, their community and society in general. So for me, it's clear that this traditional way of hustling is not sustainable in the long term. So today we want to challenge this traditional idea, delve into the harmful effects of the hustle culture and discuss strategies for redefining hustle to prioritize mental health and well-being and providing a more balanced approach to work and life. And we dive into this topic in a conversation with today's guest, Erin Harrigan. Erin is a Christian wife, emptiness mom, speaker, author, and business coach on a mission to help high-achieving Christian women scale their businesses without compromising their faith. Through her customized business coaching, speaking, and award-winning podcast, Redefining Hustle, Pursuing Success as a Christian Woman, she helps women to be more focused and fruitful by aligning business strategy and goals to God's truth. Hi, Erin. Welcome to the Forgiven Try Show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, it's such an honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Well, I really look forward to this conversation because I, I think we are in, living in a sort of epidemic where uh, the hustle culture is really permeated in, in society. So I really look forward to know what you think and know what you do with your, your clients. But before getting there, I would love to start with you. And in particular, I would like to know your journey, how 
you discover that the hustle culture that we live in is perhaps not mm. appropriate or not uh, a good one. Yeah, I my journey is I grew up as the oldest of four to a single mother. So we were in and out of poverty uh, in the D Washington, D.C. area in the U.S. And that taught me that I needed to work very hard and constantly, if you will, to create a different future for myself and for my future family. So I went to college and got a degree and immediately got into corporate America where I was in sales and project management. And my goal at the time was very money driven because we had so little growing up. So money was everything. It, it, with that, of course, came status. With that, of course, came, you know, big titles and, and big responsibilities. But that was my driving force. So I got on the hustle hamster wheel, if you will, very early, very early in life from my teen years forward. I built great success in corporate America. I spent 25 years there. Uh, about 23 years into that journey, I started a multi-level marketing business, which I thought would give me the same dollars, but more time freedom. Because what I was missing as a working mom was quality time with my kids. And my corporate environment was very demanding. However, what I actually did is took my hustle mentality, my driving and my striving, and I switched that from corporate right into my business. So I just kept going at that pace. And in 2014, I hit a wall and I reached out to a mentor and I said, I am doing everything I've been taught to do in my business. You know, the leadership in my business just kept saying, you just have to keep going. You just have to keep going. Um, they, they were very famous for saying, you know, short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. And your kids won't remember that, you know, you were gone all these times to, to work on your business. And I was driven by that because I'm an achiever. I'm all about recognition. Or I used to be, and the almighty dollar. But when I hit this wall, it felt like I woke up and went, I've been doing business as usual, the way that we've been taught, and I've been hustling, but I just feel unfulfilled and empty, and something needs to change. For me, what changed is that in, in that fateful conversation in October 2014, I gave my life to Christ, and he began to unravel for me over the next few years that I had been putting my trust and my faith in, if I just keep running hard enough, if I just keep working hard enough, if I just keep giving as much time as possible to these business endeavors, then surely I'll be setting up myself for a great income and that will take care of us, right? So it was around 20, after I accepted Christ and he was showing me all this around 2018, that he really began to show me that hustle had been misnomered, if you will that it wasn't the hustle that was the issue, that it was actually how we pursue it and how, like many things in our fallen world, it had been very much taken out of context to mean aggressive, to mean pushing, to mean go make it happen and do it however you can. And so that led me on this journey of not only coaching high-achieving women through that, but also to my own podcast and really discovering that we are adrenalized sometimes by the hustle, uh, but there's a way to do that that actually is calmer and um, more consistent and it doesn't drain us and it doesn't burn us out.
that sounds like a, a lot uh, in terms of, uh, of promise because yeah. the culture we, we live in is completely different. So when today you hear hustle culture in, in this traditional way, what do you think? When I hear people talk about hustle, I very much think of it as very aggressive, very frantic, very chaotic. And it's interesting because as I started to read more about uh, how Jesus worked, there were a couple of books that I read that talked about uh, that Jesus worked with intention and purpose, that he had a sense of timing, a sense of urgency, if you will. And he was always seeking his father's instruction. And the word hustle is not in the Bible. I want to be clear about that. But as I hear people toss around the word hustle, it always has this negative connotation to it. But that's not actually the main definition in the dictionary. So I think we're a little... We, we've taken it beyond, I think, where it was originally defined. So what is the impact that this wrong perception or wrong definition that we take of hustle can have on individuals, on families, or on society in general? Also yeah. for organization, because I, I don't think that, quite frankly, when someone hits the wall, you did, I did, it's good for the organization uh, as such. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. It has far-reaching implications. I mean, certainly, burnout, you've had your own journey. I've had mine. Uh, the toll that it takes when you're embracing hustle as, as an aggressive, chaotic, must-do way of doing business or working, or even in volunteer, I mean, honestly, it can be across all of those areas. There's an incredible burden that you take on because you begin to think, well, if I just, if I just do more, right? If I, if I compromise this priority so that I can work more or volunteer more or whatever that is. So there's an incredible burden. It's, it definitely is impactful to your mental health because it's not just about you got to keep going, but it's also the constant questioning of whether you've done enough. Could I have done more? Did I really give my best? So it's this constant self-deprecating state, if you will. And then it begins to, to spill over into your family because I know for me, my children saw me constantly going, you know, really holding onto the steering wheel, driving them to, to school, but white knuckle on the steering wheel because there was so much that had to get done. Everything was a priority. And if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. So it, began, it begins to spill over into that. I would find um, that, you know, I had this rising level of stress and anxiety. So that obviously affects your relationships. And then to your point, it affects your sleep. It affects your, your overall health. But to your point about the organization, it absolutely affects organizations. Because if you're showing up with this level of chaos and anxiety, then are you really able to give your best and work with excellence for yourself, for the organization? And I don't think that organizations get the best out of their employees and volunteers, et cetera, when they're maintaining that kind of a hustle culture. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And it's a big loss for, for every single level of, of society, really. You coach a lot of uh, uh, women to escape that traditional culture of, of hustling. What are the most common misconceptions 
they come to you with? Mm. There are a few things that jump out to me. The first is this is how they've been taught to operate. So the, the misconception is, well, this is the only way it's done. And this is business as usual. And if I don't do it this way, then how will I have the level of success, et cetera, that I'm seeking? Most of them hire me because they've already experienced success. They've got all the outward symbols of success, but inwardly they're empty, they're depleted, they're overwhelmed. And they, they want to scale or grow, but they just cannot take another minute of doing business the way they have. So the first one is that I have to do it this way and this is the only way that it's done. The second one is they, they, they have a misconception that, well, if I slow down or if I, if I do this from a place of calm or even joy, that's impossible. I must not be working. I'm, I, you know, that, that, that is never going to work. Um, and if I do that, then I'm not ambitious, right? That I'm, that I'm not the go-getter person, or maybe in some cases, they're afraid that they'll lose power, if you will, um, in the roles that they're in or in the businesses that they're building. So that's the second thing is that doing this differently would, would compromise the status or the position, et cetera, that they've got. And the third thing that is a, is a big misconception is that, that they will lose everything if they change the way that they've done business. And these are women, as I mentioned, I mean, they've got, you know, potentially six, seven figure businesses and they live in fear of, uh, if I, if I don't, if I don't do things this way, I'll lose everything. So they really come in with this idea that, that they know that they want to do it differently, but they just aren't sure or don't trust that it can be done differently. You mentioned here the word fear, and I think fear is quite critical because some, like you mentioned, have this fear of losing everything they have achieved. For others, is the fear of failure, for example. Uh, others is the fear of achieving success. That's right. So fear is, is a big component. How much you saw fear being the, the driver in, in your clients? Mm. There are so many levels of fear. You know, these, these women, you know those women, they appear to have it all together on the outside, right? And they appear fearless. And they, they appear very comfortable with the success that they've had. So fear that they'll have to keep going at this pace and there'll be no way out and then what, right? Fear that if they change the way that they do business, that their peers or um, those who see them as an expert will begin to question what they're doing and if they really can, are up for the job. Uh, fear, even fear of success. Like if I do business differently and I have great success, how do I quantify that success, right? How do I replicate that? How do I show others that they can do this too? Because it, it, it doesn't seem measurable. Those are some of the big fears that I see. You mentioned here measuring success and success is not something that we can define as a, a common for everybody. You know, every person has uh, their own idea of what success is. What is the definition that most people 
are after? Oh, gosh. Status, money. You know, it could look like how many clients they have, how full is their client roster? Uh, ha have they reached that, that, you know, mystical 5K, 10K, 20K, 30K month? That is mainly what I see that the world has imposed upon us from a success definition. It's interesting because I, I have a number of clients who come to me with those, un with that understanding. But really, when we dig into it, that is not underneath at all what makes them do what they do. You know, it really isn't related to those measurable things. There's, there's this, this need and this desire to have impact and to have significance. But I think in a world that measures everything by math and ranking, it is, it's not what we normally see as measuring success in, in those ways. I love what you're saying because I, I totally agree. I mean, if we want to change the way we redefine hustle, we have to think at different levels. Yes. So there is definitely a change that happens at personal level, changes that happen at family level, at organization level, and then obviously a societal level. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. So shall we go step by step? So, for example, at personal level, we just said that redefining success as your bank account or, you know, your titles or your achievements is not something that is really fulfilling. So how can we redefine success in a way that, for example, aligns with our values, aligns with our, our passions, and, and is not driven from... Uh, by something that is really outside us. And it, as you said, it's just a number or statistics or whatever. Right. From a personal level, I believe it starts with understanding those things, understanding what your values are, right? Understanding what it would look like to be more present in your work, more present with your family, more present with yourself. We've got to understand what are those drivers for you? And, and if money is a driver, that's okay, right? But, but let's be clear on what those drivers are. So for me, from a personal perspective, we've got to start there to really identify what those things are. The second thing from a personal perspective is how are you defining yourself? Are you defining yourself in terms of the achievement and the accolades and, and the levels of, of expansion, growth, et cetera? Or for me and for my clients who are Christian women, are you embracing the fact that only God can define you, right? He doesn't define you by all of these worldly things. And so understanding how, how you're defining yourself and the first thing we said, how you're defining success, those pieces together is, is where it starts for me from a personal level. I, I love that. If you had to name one, probably the most undervalued or underused tool or aspect of, of thing uh, that can help us coming out of that hustle-based environment, what or mm. idea, what 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 that would be? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> one tool. Well, one tool <clears throat> that I use with, I mean, I use the Bible. I mean, to me, you know, that's the foundation of it. But, and 
a great tool, even if you, you know, are not a faith, a person of faith, is journaling. You know, I think sometimes people are afraid to journal because they think, well, I'll be graded, or I don't know what to write, or I don't know what to say. If you think of journaling as writing to yourself, if you think of journaling as brain dumping all of the emotion and everything that you have around your work and in life, if you think of journaling as I do with as a conversation with God, that tool just to clear your mind is such a great place to start. And really identifying if you if you feel like the hustle is draining you, why? What what is it about the hustle? What is it about the work? What you know, why do you feel so busy? What what's happening? You can get all of that on paper. And then suddenly you have it in black and white to be able to go, oh, like this is what's going through my head. This is what's causing my stress and those things. To me, that's such such an incredible tool in journaling. I, I love that. I, I don't journal that often, uh, to be honest. But when I do, um, I can see the value of it. It, it. As you said, it's really dumping down on a piece of paper everything that is going through, through your mind. And I guess when you start the first time, fear can be a big component sure. and, and stop you from, uh, from, from there. But I definitely value uh, journaling. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be written. I mean, you can type it into your laptop. I mean, I journal things on my phone, <laughs> my notes, right? As those ideas are coming to me, I'm putting them down. Just get them down and out of your head. Yeah, absolutely. Karin, where do you place self-compassion and prioritizing rest mm. in the fight in the fight to escape the hustle culture? You know, I, I find that rest and even sometimes self-compassion are the definition of those things I think we misconstrue. You know, so often I, I hear women say, I just don't have time to rest. And I, and I always say, well, what does rest mean to you, right? Because if rest only seems to be defined by taking a nap, right? <laughs> um, I, I think we missed the point. Rest, rest needs to be a priority because we, we're called, we're made to renew our minds. We're made to rest. You know, we know that sleep is completely related to renewal and regeneration in our minds and in our thoughts. But rest could be going for a run. Rest could be sitting and reading a book. Rest could be working on a crossword. I mean, there's so many ways that, that you can characterize rest. What is it that you do that, that renews you, that calms you? Like those are all the, the things to think about when rest, when you think about rest. And rest is vitally, vitally important. There is a reason why, whether you're a believer or not, God created the Sabbath so that people would rest, right? He rested. So, so we overlook that. And that to me goes hand in hand with self-compassion because we're so used to kind of saying to ourselves, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go get it done. You know, you won't have to run at this pace forever or, you know, the worst, like I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? Like um, we don't give ourselves a lot of self-compassion and it's not just the compassion of, allowing ourselves space and time to rest and think. But it's also, we're so 
terrible in our self-talk. Oh, you're so lazy. Oh, you're so stupid. You shouldn't have done that. Oh, you know, stop whining and just go get the work done. All of that really undermines our self-compassion. So those two pieces need to be carefully woven into the way that we work and in, in our mode of operation. And uh, certainly in today's culture, we're not good at that at all. I, I totally agree uh, on this particular point. And in fact, I, I want to take it one step further. Uh, moving from the individual to the family. I remember when I was a kid, I used to spend most of my afternoon after school playing with my friends. And I have to say, hide and seek was by far my favorite game. And today I have two nephews and a niece, age ranging between eight and, and 15, almost 16 now. And every spare time mm -hmm. is used practicing sports, almost at you know, professional level, semi-professional level, piano lessons, and you know, everything, every moment of their life is scheduled. And I wonder sometimes if this is creating that sense of hustling culture that we would like to escape as adults, but we are taking our children and basically taking into that culture themselves. Yeah. What, what do you think? And what would be a better way to, mm. to deal with, uh, with the situation early on? Because it's better never, you know, late than, ev than never, but That's right. we can <laughs> learn the lesson <laughs> growing um, up when, you know, playing hide and seek rather than uh, uh, feeling, okay, now it's, piano lesson and I have to recite and then I need to go and play football and you know I have the game and there is the competition and it feels like too much. Yeah I love where you've taken this because I do think it's too much. When my kids were young and I traveled a lot for my job and so we had a rule in our family that you could only be in one activity at a time. So my, my kids didn't play sports. My, my daughter was a cheerleader which is a sport, by the way. Uh, she was a cheerleader. Uh, my oldest daughter, my younger daughter was in theater. And we had that rule because we just, we didn't have a lot of the time and I wasn't around as much to kind of cart them everywhere. I mean, my husband certainly did, but what's funny is, oh, this is so good. When I left corporate and I had the time because of my multi-level marketing business, I ran my kid everywhere, right? My younger daughter said to me the other day, like she remembers I would pick her up at school. We'd drive to Washington DC, which was easily an hour. She'd be in chorus, in this chorus. And then I'd bring her home. And then the next day she had the piano lesson. And then she had this lesson. And it was almost like, you know, I wanted this quality time, but now I've signed my kids up for everything. I, I agree with you. I think part of it is it will be difficult to change over time because there's so much drive for competition. There's so much drive for you know, achieving these levels of experience that, you know, one day will look good so that they can make the varsity team at high school and then maybe they could play in college. Uh, I also think part of it is that as parents, we're so used to going that we just sort of, you know, impart that to our kids. And, and so we have them going. I used to be really good at filling all the white space on my calendar because I have the energy to do that. 
And my husband would just shake his head and say, no, I can't do one more thing, you know? So I think there's an expectation in society to be always going. I think that we also have this need to fill the time so we won't be idle as if being idle is a negative thing right now now i know probably some people have been raised you know like i idle hands or the devil's work or playground or whatever right like if i don't keep my kids busy they're going to get in trouble but i remember playing outside until the street lights came on and riding our bikes and all the things i think that we've gotten away from that because it's like society almost demands that we're constantly busy and not outside playing hide and seek. So I do think that I don't know where the answer is in changing that other than slowing ourselves down first and then beginning to model that within our family. Yeah, I, I love and I totally agree on uh, on this point. But I, I think it's, uh, again, it's a sort of emergency if we think of uh, all the children. Yeah. It's not just my nephews and niece. Um, I see a lot of friends with, with children, and it seems that everyone is, um, from very early on, uh, is extremely busy. Mm -hmm. Even children's calendar doesn't have don't have really white um, space and uh, an idle moment, which is really a shame because that's how they learn and spending time together and. Uh, you know, inventing uh, new games. Right. And, and if I could just add to that, we are raising a generation, think what you want about millennials, but we are raising a generation that cannot slow down. So my daughters, my older daughter is really good at this, at putting boundaries around her time and, and resting, right? Um, Sometimes I think she goes to the extreme on that, but my younger daughter, she has a really hard time slowing down. She has a really hard time being still. Um, and she, you know, she never, that we know of, suffered with, you know, ADD or ADHD. My older daughter does live with ADD, but um, my younger one just doesn't slow down. And so we're creating this generation of, pe of, of kids, young adults, who will be adults and our future leaders, who aren't aren't able to slow down aren't able to focus aren't able to rest their minds and it's just going to perpetuate you know a vicious cycle of that you just mentioned adhd and i, I wonder if the spread of adhd among a lot of children can be a consequence of the fact, uh, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not an expert. I'm right, not. I don't know, but... I was talking with a coach who suffers of ADHD and works with a, a lot of people suffering from ADHD. And what he said, basically, he, he doesn't know how to channel his attention. He is uh, constantly focusing on everything that is uh, on his, uh, around him. I, I wonder if this uh, culture that we are imposing almost on, on our children is uh, contributing to, to this uh, illness. It's something perhaps to, to explore and uh, investigate. Anyway, mo moving forward, you mentioned boundaries, and boundaries for me is uh, very much, well, is, uh, are important in every aspect of life, but specifically when it comes to work and, uh, and organization. And I know for a fact that one of the issues I had before burning out was 
lack of boundaries. How can one keep the boundaries mm. at the right level? To, to me, it goes back to what you said about self-compassion first, right? We've got to have enough compassion for ourselves to know our limits, to know what we value, and then to build boundaries around our work with those things in mind. Um, as, as a follower of Christ, I have, in my walk, have learned, right? God first, then my family, then my business. Now that was preached to me, preached, quote unquote, when I was in my multi-level marketing business, but no one actually did it, <laughs> right? Everyone was still constantly working. So it was just sort of given lip service. But it's got to start with the self-compassion. How, how do you carve out the time you need to rest, to refuel? That's got to be a boundary. Setting work hours has to be a boundary. In this time post-pandemic where we've finally discovered that, that some things can be worked on from home. I've been working from home for 19 years, but some, of, some didn't discover that they could actually do it until the pandemic. How do we build boundaries when our office is in our dining room, right? So sometimes it's a physical boundary, moving that laptop to another room or physically shutting it down, turning it off at a certain time. I used to be really good at working and then eating dinner and getting the kids to bed and then going back to work, right? So how do you put a boundary around that? Because that's affecting time with the family, that's affecting sleep, which of course, as we talked about, is affecting the organization. And getting clear on what those work hours will look like and even those work days will look like. You know, so often as entrepreneurs, we're told, well, now you have your own business, you can work when you wanna work. But then we're also sort of taught to, you know, constantly work, right? And so we find ourselves working on weekends, et cetera. It took me a long time to get to a place in my entrepreneur journey. So this has come about, I would say in the last five, well, probably two years where I'm like, no, 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 I don't have to sit at my desk for eight hours. The work that I do doesn't take eight, doesn't take 40 hours. So what if I set a goal to shut down every day at three o'clock or whatever that looks like? Now, certainly if you're in the workplace, that will look different because of the hours that, that you need to keep. But it also comes down to being willing to say a very small word with very big impact, which is no. Such a difficult word to, to say, isn't it? It's a yeah. short one, but it's very difficult to, to say. Yeah. Karin, how can we advocate for ourselves and our well-being at work? Mm. And uh, how can we, uh, what are some strategies perhaps that we can use to negotiate, if you like, better conditions, quality of life at work? It's been interesting to watch so many companies implement wellness programs, right? I mean, I know companies that are now really enforcing that you take a lunch break, right? Or offering, you know, a meditation or yoga or, or what have you. So negotiating that, of course, will vary based on the environment that you're in and, and the management and, and with whom you're working. 
I, for me, I would say personally, it starts with a boundary around what your workday looks like. Now I can already see people who are going, you don't understand, I work 12 hour days, right? But do you have to work a 12 hour day? I mean, ask yourself that question. Can what I'm doing be done in less time? Because I believe there's a principle, I think it's called the Parkinson's principle, I can't remember, that basically says our work will expand or contract to fit the time that we have. So in other words, Maybe what you're doing doesn't take 12 hours, but because you're giving it 12 hours, it takes 12 hours, right? So first getting clear on what that work schedule is. Secondly, getting clear that you need to take breaks during that day. So many of us eat lunch at our desks as, as I'm looking at my lunch to my left, right? But can you get up like negotiating that you need to have that time. That's when you work your best. You need to refresh your mind, even if it's going for a 15-minute walk. Um, negotiating and, and having conversations around what's expected of you in off hours. What I have loved seeing number of companies doing in their email signatures, I've seen people say um, the, something to the effect of the time at which I respond to your email is not an expectation of you to respond to me. So in other words, maybe working at 10 o'clock at night works for me, but I'm not expecting the people on the other end of my email to respond at that time. So getting really clear about what those boundaries are, right? Am I expected to be picking up the phone late at night? Am I expecting to be logging in on the weekends and really talking to your upper management, even talking to, you know, your human resources officers about needing that kind of respite and that kind of renewal time for you to do your best work. And finally, I would say, if you're in a situation where you think I can't have any of those conversations, my question is, how much longer do you want to work under those conditions? This is uh, extremely important. And uh, I, I agree. Uh, it starts with us mm. because I know that a lot of companies, my organization, for example, has started with well-being network and all these kind of uh, initiatives. But sometimes I feel it's more taking a box rather than yes. creating a real change within, uh, within the company. Um, so, for example, in the last couple of years, I've been in a conversation with uh, HR and my line managers to really start shifting the perception around certain topics, mm -hmm. because yes, they had this uh, well-being network, but it's yeah. not compulsory. Only people that already have a sensitivity towards certain topic right. are prepared to go there and listen to these webinars and uh, be active in, in, in them. Everyone else that didn't have that sensitivity couldn't even understand why these mm. things were done. So True. how can we create a culture where everybody really understands this is important? Obviously, every person individually has to, to take that, that step. But as an organization, for example, what would you suggest there? Talk or, you know, I, I, I don't like thinking of something that becomes compulsory, but at yes. the time, how do you convey that message that really... Right. It's important and it's about health and not just productivity, for example. Well, I love that you talked about 
in some organizations, it's ticking the box because I do believe that, right? Because then if in a, as long as they tick the box, then someone could come back and say, well, I didn't have this support. And they would say, oh, but we have this program right here, right? But if it's never implemented, from my perspective, it starts from a top-down approach. The executive leadership of an organization needs to model and articulate how important that is to the organization. It cannot just be an HR initiative. It cannot just be an employee assistance program like we have here in the U.S. It's got to be from the top down. I've seen organizations do an incredible job at this. You know, where the, the, from the CEO down through the VP level, through the directors, they're all singing from that, song, that same songbook that says, this is what we value. So, so let me back up. It's got to start with the company values, right? It's got to start with the company credo or manifesto or whatever they call it. It's got to start there, that they truly value their employees' well-being or family or what have you. And then it's got to be modeled. It can't just be for some people, you know, it can't be that the executive leadership says, oh, we've ticked that box and everyone else needs it, but we're not participating in that. No, it's got, it's got to be modeled behavior. And I believe it also needs to have employee input because your employees, when, when you're part of employees, volunteers, however you look at it, they are critical to your business. They're critical to the operation and success of your organization. So they need to have a space, a seat at the table to talk about what that will look like and, and how it will be tangibly, tactically rolled out. Like what is the pull through on that, right? It can't just be on paper. And so as an employee, I would say, if you don't have that kind of an environment, you know, certainly have that conversation with, with your direct supervisor, certainly have the conversation with HR. I know that sometimes human resources not, feels like they're not the most trusted entity in an organization. Um, but even come, you know, take a look at organizations that are like yours that are doing things like this and, and bringing some of that, that research with you to say, you know, listen, some of our competitors are even doing this and here are the results that they're seeing so that you're coming to the table with the information and the data. I'm not telling you you have to be a researcher, but um, you certainly can find out that information so that you're coming to the table to be prepared to have that conversation. I love that. And I love also the fact that uh, I think organizations need to seek the employee opinion uh, on these particular topics. Uh, first and foremost, because if they are involved, they will be more likely to right. do these things. But also for the sense of belonging to the organization, which I think is, uh, is extremely important. Erin, how would you uh, consider, for example, uh, measuring success for an organization beyond output, beyond productivity in, uh, in this fight against the hustle culture? Mm. An organization that I used to work for actually did an employee survey um, quarterly, I think we did. And it really measured not just the productivity pieces and the easy math, but it, it measured the qualitative experience of the employees. I, I think any time you're, you're 
using something like a 360 review where, you know, the managers get reviewed by their peers, but they also get reviewed by their employees. But I think having, if it's important to the organization culturally to really drive this, this idea of redefining hustle and what do we value and, and what does that look like? You've got to be surveying the employees. You've got to be having those conversations for sure. Um, and even reaching out to your customers to understand what does it feel like for them to work with you? Because just like dogs can smell fear, people can sense, you know, when someone has just a level of frantic and chaotic energy because they're all over the place. I mean, I remember being told in a couple of my performance reviews, you know, when you, when you are focused and you are sort of eye to eye with the client, you are great. And there are times where you are all over the place because you think it all has to get done. So, I mean, even in my own performance appraisals, right, that, that was clear. So having those, that level of sort of internal research, internal survey, internal conversation around that is, is critical so that you can measure over time, you know, how well are we supporting our employees in having a calm work environment or encouraging rest and self-compassion and, you know, giving them the time that they don't have to be checking in at nine o'clock at night and all over the weekends. You got to collect some of that information so that you can see that you're moving the needle. Mm. Yeah, uh, I absolutely uh, agreed on, uh, on this. This kind of uh, thought is, for me, almost has um, a female sense. Yes. And uh, it sort of uh, contrasts with the typical alpha type ballroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, we probably see sometimes in, uh, in movies and uh, in television. Based on your experience, you work with, mostly with, with women. Have you noticed or do you have any data in, uh, when it comes to the hustling culture and the gender balance, if you like, or mm. unbalance? From my perspective... Certainly, from a male-female, you know, DNA, <laughs> if you will, and I'm not a scientist. It, it the 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 need to hustle or the instinct to hustle, I think, comes from very different places. You know, for men, it's I I I'm not a man, so I can't answer that. But I think that from a man's perspective, it, this is just what happens, right? This is just what we do, and we're competitive, and you know. But for women, I think it's almost been born out of the need to prove themselves and to work at the pace of, of, of men in organizations or to work at a pace to get ahead and to get to the top. I mean, I know for me, getting to the top of anything was clearly important to me. And it's an area that I have to really temper. So... That, that to me is a little bit of the difference. I think that some women are naturally cut out to, to be, to move at a faster pace and to hustle. I know I'm like that, but I have to embrace that. God made me that way. So then how do I do that in a way that honors him and doesn't compromise him, doesn't compromise my family or, or my values? And if we can look at it from that perspective, it changes. But I, I definitely would see that difference between the genders. Yeah. Let's move to the final level, a societal level. What can we do as a, as a society to embrace a different culture? 
when it comes mm -hmm. to saying. It goes so deep, right? I mean, we've been certainly in the United States, we've been running since we started, right? <laughs> I, I really, I, I think we could learn so much if we could embrace the way other countries do things. But, you know, that just seems to not be the American way, uh, which is unfortunate because it has become such an instant gratification, you know, move at the speed of sound, if you will, culture. As a society, I think we have an uphill battle because that kind of radical change <laughs> uh, would have to permeate all of the levels that we just talked about. But I also believe that as individuals, we have an incredible opportunity to make a ripple effect. So what I know is when, when I am showing up in my business, I'm seeking to emulate Jesus as I work. So I seek to work with intention and purpose and a sense of timing, yes, but always as his ambassador, because that's what I've been made to be. And therefore, because I've been invited to be God's co-laborer, there's, there's a level of expectancy of how I show up in the world. And so what I've seen as a ripple effect is that I can come into working with someone who's very chaotic and all over the place, and I just can't focus. And because of me relying on my faith and the ability to redefine hustle, that I can calm that situation. So that's a ripple effect, right? Because if I work with you and you feel calmer, then you're going to go home and feel calmer. And then your organization is going to feel calmer. And then in society, it's calmer. Now we are human. So I always think if you want chaos, just drop a human in the middle of anything. But I think it starts in small ways. And we, we can make the most impact in our immediate circles. And sometimes we can get very disgruntled and disappointed that it's not broader change, but the most important change is in the circle around you. So I think as more people begin to embrace working from that perspective, kind of even working from a place of rest, if you will. But do I think there'll be broad change? I, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm hopeful, but... You know, it's, um, it's hard, I think, for people to swallow this idea of like, wait a minute, you mean I could slow down to go fast? It's kind of like those, those little toy cars where you pull them back and then they go faster. I, I believe that when we re redefine hustle, that it's exactly like that. Like, we almost slow down to speed up. Our conversations are better. Our, our interactions are better. Our sales calls are better. And that makes us better at what we do. And it... It has to start with the individual. I, I agree. And sometimes it, it really takes one person to start a, a change. And I like this idea of the ripple effect that we can uh, all contribute to uh, in our own circle. Yeah. Erin, when we are in this hamster wheel that you mentioned uh, at the very beginning, uh, we might create a lot of emotions that over a long period of time may become disempowering. Mm. And um, I would like to ask you, how do you deal with these emotions? How do you let them go? And mm. what do you think of forgiveness as mm. um, a, a tool, basically, to, to do exactly that and uh, mm. uh, to allow one's to, one to move forward and, uh, and not stay stuck? where they are in, uh, you know, 
cooking in, in those emotions? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's such a great question because, oh my gosh, forgiveness, right? I mean, you know, we could talk about it all day. <laughs> for me, first, how do I deal with the emotion of it? Uh, it for me, it's prayer, it's journaling. And, and also knowing that, you know, I've been over the last couple of weeks, I've been going through a little bit of a dark period. I was really struggling with um, some things that I know God has called me to bigger scaling, but I've held myself back because even though I am a new creation in God, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid to, to go after it because I'm like, Ooh, well, what if I go back to being this person that I was? And he, and thankfully he's reminded me like, you can't, like, you'll never go back to that. Right. Um, but I had to forgive myself. I had to forgive myself for beating myself up for being that really aggressive driven. Not that being driven is wrong, but the way that I was doing it, um, I had to forgive myself for the time lost with family and friends because I was just so, you know, head down in my business. And there are times that you would be head down in your business and your work, but not constantly. So self-forgiveness is a, a big piece of that in dealing with those emotions. And then forgiving those with whom we work, right? Forgiving those who lead the organization that is not concerned, if you will, uh, about our well-being, that, that is asking us to work constantly and, and work at a faster pace and all of those things and forgiving them because we have to remember that that's all they know too, right? You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> um, so forgiveness around that. Even sometimes it's forgiveness around, for me, God, because I think, like, why would I have to forgive God, right? <laughs> but sometimes I blame him for putting me in these situations or blame him for, um, for creating me to be so ambitious. Like, Lord, if I, if I weren't so ambitious, if I was more of like a melancholy temperament, like I'd be a important, my tasks would be important, but I wouldn't get so caught up in the personal emotion around it. Um, so it's like saying, Lord, I get it. It's not forgiveness per se, but it's just saying, you know what? You made me perfectly this way. And I accept that So show me how to work within that in a way that, you know, honors you. I think forgiveness is so hard for us because we know we should do it, but on some level, we think we're letting that person it, even if that person is ourself, off the hook. But we have to remember that forgiveness isn't for that person. It's really for us. It goes back to that old adage about, you know, if I'm drinking the poison, but I'm expecting you, you know, to be injured by that. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. So I do agree with you that forgiveness plays a big part of that. And, and it's not a one-day thing. I think that it's a practice Right. There are layers to it. And there are layers to forgiving ourselves and forgiving those with whom we work. Absolutely. I always say forgiveness is a journey. It is. <laughs> right. Um, Erin, I would like to come back uh, on you for uh, a moment before really concluding this lovely conversation and ask you if there is anything special that you are planning and you would like to share with us. Oh, sure. Sure. So really what's happening um, right now is just expanding those that I serve with the tools that I have. So I would love to invite everyone 
to download a tool that I have. It's called the four keys to redefine hustle. So you can download that. I know that link will be in the show notes and really at my website, aaronharrigan.com. You can find my podcast. You can learn how to work with me. And right now I'm really focused on just getting even more clear for those that I serve, understanding the pain that they have and, and speaking to that. Some of my messaging is, is just changing a little bit and, you know, it's that stepping out boldly for the Lord <laughs> and I'm going, are you sure? Um, so yeah, please go to my website and just, you know, see how I can best serve you with my content or working with me or whatever that looks like. Fantastic. And as always, we will put everything and all the links in the description of today's episode. Erin, final question. If there was one take-home message that you would love everybody to remember from this conversation, what that would be? You are in control of how you hustle. You get to decide that. So decide how much longer you want to keep the pace that you're going. Fantastic. Well, I hope that this episode has inspired you to challenge the traditional notion of hustle and embrace a new approach to achieving your goals. One that values rest, self-care, and sustainable growth, and has your most significant values right at the core of it. Remember, success is not just about productivity and output, but also about prioritizing your mental and physical well-being. And on this note, I want to leave you with a quote from Arianna Huffington, who said, redefining hustle means valuing progress over perfection and focusing on sustainable growth instead of quick wins. Mm. Erin, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and for sharing so much about uh, this topic. I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, it was such a great conversation. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we would love to know what you think about this topic. Are you or somebody, you know, experiencing the consequences of the hustle culture? If so, I believe there is uh, a lot in, uh, in this episode to understand the importance of uh, changing direction and also how to start uh, this, uh, this change. But if you have any question that perhaps we didn't address today, I invite you to get in touch and let us know. Also, don't forget to check Erin's website, to listen to her podcast, and to follow her on social media. You will find all the links in the description of today's episode. Hopefully not, but if you have been affected in any way by the topic we discussed today, as always, I invite you to seek professional help. Join me next time when we will continue exploring inspiring and challenging situations. Because remember, we are together in this journey. Remember, forgiveness is like a muscle. The more you practice, the stronger and more effective it becomes. If you haven't done it yet, you can subscribe by clicking the subscribe button below. If you know anybody who could benefit from the topics discussed in this show, do some good and share the link with them. If you have a story that you want to share with us, comments or suggestions on topics you would like to be explored, send me an email at forgiventrive.com at gmail.com. Reviews will also be very much appreciated. And with this, it's a wrap. Till next time, thank you and goodbye.